Good morning, everybody. I am so delighted you're here. I see a lot of fresh faces. I see a lot of people who were present last night. If you were there last night, would you raise your hand? Oh, a good bit of you. That's fantastic. Um, We've got a row um, of people on this third row that you ought to meet, and there are probably more sprinkled throughout. Well, look, everybody in here is a valuable creature of God and ought to be met and ought to be spiritually hugged around the neck. But some of you will find people that you don't normally find in the class. Uh, I'm saying the third row, but I see Gary Habermas right back there. He's not on the third row. He's like a sixth row Baptist. And um, I've got... (laughs) Uh, but he is a, a great uh, 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 author. We've, I've interviewed him before here. He'll be back next year, God willing. But we've got, uh, anybody in here, where are my golfers? Where's Moriarty and his clan? Okay, Mike, you need to come here. Come on, every chance you get, hurry. It's the class. <laughs> Melna, let him go. <clears throat> yeah, so... Mike, I want you to meet Kermit. Kermit, would you stand up and meet Mike? Mike runs our golf tournament in this class every year. Kermit was on the PGA Tour in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, started the PGA Bible Studies, Jack Nicholas, all of those kinds of people. He beat them like a drum. <laughs> That's all. You can go back to Melna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Kermit just wanted to meet you. And um, uh, we've got sprinkled throughout. So if there's someone near you that you do not know, please take time to greet them. Meanwhile, it is my pleasure for you to all get to meet and greet my friend, Dr. John Lennox. So first, give him a Texas welcome. <clears throat> Now, instead of introducing him in a formal manner and telling you all about him, I'm going to do it like I might have to do it in a courtroom. And a courtroom, judges don't really let you make speeches unless it's opening statement or closing argument. You have to do everything through witnesses asking questions. And you never want to put a witness on who brags about themselves because that just comes off distasteful. But I've got a man of great humility So I'm going to have to drag it out of him because he deserves to be bragged on, not because of his personal greatness, but because of the greatness God bestowed upon him that he has used as a good steward, which has opened doors for him for the kingdom. And he's walked through those doors through the power of God. And I want us to not only understand what he's got to say, But I want us to really get a gist of how God has worked in his life to place him at a unique place in time that gives us the blessing of getting to hear him. Now, he's been over to the U.S. a bunch, but in two weeks he turns 80 and he has sworn to his wife this would be his last trip to the U.S., but we've already started making some cracks in that promise. (laughs) Simply because he's beginning to understand Champion Forest hospitality. And um, uh, so with that, let's commence the interview. Okay, Dr. John Lennox, 
I want to start by talking about some background personal information. I referenced your wife. Tell everybody about Sally. Ladies and gentlemen, it's lovely to be with you. The first thing I would say is that my wife and I, over the years, have come to love the kind of hospitality and friendship that believers in the U.S. have shown us. And we have been deeply honored to get to know many people in many parts of this country. I had a mentor for about 50 years who was a brilliant Bible scholar. And when I was about to go to Cambridge, he used to joke a little bit and talk in a quasi-biblical language. So he said to me one day, John, there is a man in Cambridge with four daughters. So I turned up in Cambridge on Saturday, and I was taken to church on Sunday, and lo and behold, there were four girls, four blonde girls, four, three, two, one, and I chose the eldest of them, and I've been married to her for 55 years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 55 years of marriage. That's produced some kids, hasn't it? Three kids, 10 grandkids, and a lot of expense. (laughs) Oh, but someone should be taking care of you as you age. She is. She's remarkable. Fantastic. Now, will Sally be able to watch this on the internet? She will later. Is there any special message you want to tell her? Well, just that I so much appreciate what the Lord has done in giving me a wife that promised early on, she said, I will never stop you serving the Lord, and she never has. Wow, amazing, amazing. Now, you were born where? In a hospital. (laughs) That's that's actually, not everybody can say that. No, they can't. No, Um, but I, in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, because I was a, a complicated child, my mother had lost two children before me, and I was not expected to live. Uh, God had plans for you, though. Belfast, Northern Ireland. Now, in the U.S., we are not as savvy to the troubles, as I believe they're called. But uh, uh, would you tell us a little bit about what it was like in Northern Ireland? Well, the troubles really arose. They lasted about 30 years. Tension between Catholic and Protestant communities driven by a secular agenda, which was essentially Marxist. It's a complicated story, but I grew up, in a way, in the heart of it. Armagh City, where we lived, is the ecclesiastical capital of Ireland. And symbolic of the whole situation, it is two cathedrals situated on opposite hills with the same name, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And that says it all. And it was really at the heart of what was called bandit country. I left for Cambridge before the troubles really started, but they impinged even on our own family. And I learned a huge lesson from my parents, to whom I owe a great deal. They were were very keen evangelical Christians, but two things about them, amongst others, has impacted me. First of all, Dad was Christian without being sectarian. That was not easy. What did that mean? It meant that in his small business, perhaps employing 
40 to 50 people at most. He tried as best he could to employ equally across the divide and was bombed for it. My brother nearly lost his life when a bomb blew up at his face and a glass window tore his face to pieces. And I asked him, I said, Dad, why do you do it? It's too risky. He said, listen, Scripture teaches us that every man and woman, irrespective of worldview, is made in the image of God. And he paused. And then he said, and I intend to treat them like that. Now, that was profound, and it has lived with me all my life. When I've met some of the pretty vicious atheists of this world, I remember what my parents taught, respect for other people in open dialogue. The second thing my parents did for me was they loved me enough to allow me to think, and they encouraged me to think. And I remember when I was about 14, my father handed me a book. He said, you should read this. I said, have you read it? He said, no. (laughs) I said, what is it? He said, the Communist Manifesto. Why should I read that? He said, you need to know what other people think. Now, he was essentially an uneducated man. He would have given his right arm for an education. And he, in a sense, lived through me. And he gave me every opportunity. And he was quite remarkable. He used to come to Cambridge. He'd say, invite half a dozen of your friends for a simple lunch at a restaurant. And afterwards, he'd sit on the floor among students who were less than a quarter of his age. And he'd simply ask them questions. It was a remarkably humble attitude. So I owe them a huge debt. You know, I often think, if I see anything at all, it's only because I'm standing on tall people. So you grew up in a home with an incredibly heroic father and mother in so many ways. How did you take the faith that was in your home atmosphere and how did that become personal to you? Looking back nearly 80 years, it's often difficult, as many older people here may realize who are brought up in Christian homes, it's often difficult to disentangle your own experience from the kind of ambiente, what was expected of you. There was never a time when I didn't believe the gospel, so to speak. It was explained to me very early, I have no idea what it's like to be an adult and not a believer. That has disadvantages, but it also has advantages. So I responded early on. I knew that one wasn't born a Christian, that I had to become a Christian. But it's dangerous looking back to really ascertain uh, the point of entry, so to speak. And I was one of those people who was a little bit unsure of things. So I got converted a whole lot of times. (laughs) I think many older people will identify with that. And it was only growing up when I started to expose my Christian faith to its opposite. And I've done that all my life that the certainty began. Because if you're brought up in a very strongly Christian background, the big objection that you'll meet, and I met it very strongly in the first days at Cambridge, when a student at table said to me, he was being very friendly, and he said, John, do you believe in God? Do you go to church? And then he said, oh, sorry, you're Irish. Um, All you Irish go to church and you fight about it, you see. (laughs) 
And that's a Freudian objection, and I'd heard it many times before, but suddenly it clicked. I had now a unique opportunity in one of the best universities in the world to get to know, as friends, people who did not share my worldview. And I looked around the mathematicians, and forgive me, gentlemen, in those days I was very primitive and naive. I thought people with beards would probably be atheists. And so I looked round the crowd, and one of the mathematicians, who turned out to be the brightest of the lot, had a beard. So I started chatting to him. He wasn't an atheist, he was an agnostic. But after a year of discussion, we were talking one day, and I said, you, you weren't listening to the lecture this morning. No, he said, I wasn't. He said, last night I kneeled down and trusted Christ. Now that, <clears throat> for me was powerful evidence that it's possible to change your worldview. And that has become immensely important in life. Because so often, and I may tell a funny story later about Peter Singer, if you remind me, it's very important for me to realize it's not just because you're born in a Christian background and all of that. It is possible to change your worldview and become a Christian from any other worldview. Did he shave? No. No. Just just checking your your theory out. Oh, no, the theory's dead. It's one of those scientifically indefensible ideas of a rather ignorant youth. Fair, fair. (laughs) Some Uh, of the nicest people I know of beers. (laughs) Never mind. Uh, It's Uh, okay. We won't go there. I'm going to leave it. Um, you, You brought us into Cambridge... I'd love for people to get a feel for your education. I I frequently say of you uh, that you have more degrees than a thermometer. Um, Would you give us an understanding? And and this is just not bragging. This is a a question of where God has placed you and what he's enabled you to do. I'd like people to understand the breadth of your education. Well, it's not as broad as some people think. Uh, my brother is less kind than Mark. He says I'm perishing by degrees. <laughs> I like that. I, I wanted to be a linguist first. I love languages. And I had a brilliant Latin teacher. So that was the first thing. Then I became a ham radio operator at the age of 14. And found I could talk around the world. I built a transmitter and so on. I even talked to... Uh, the King of Jordan on the radio to the uh, Hilary Fuchs expedition as they walked across the ice to the South Pole. It was really heady stuff for a 14-year-old. And then I thought uh, we couldn't really afford to do foreign travel, but I could speak French and then German and then Russian on the radio. It was wonderful. And actually, my father didn't want a TV he was amazing. He said, look, I asked for TV. TV wasn't in every home. And he said, I don't know why. I have a conscience about it. I think it could hinder your education. So we're not going to have a TV. But then he said this, is there anything else that would interest you? A piece of equipment. And I said, Dad, I sometimes listen to shortwave. I like a ship's radio. Okay. He took a day off work that wasn't easy, went to Belfast and bought a ship's radio. And I heard radio amateurs on it. He didn't know 
that he was opening the door to my ministry in the German-speaking world that still goes on and was a massive part of my background. That's just the way in which God guides behind the scenes. But I went to Emmanuel College, Cambridge, because I was set to do electrical engineering because of the amateur radio. And the headmaster came to me one day, and he said, Lennox, he said, we think you might have a chance of getting into Cambridge, but only if you do mathematics, because we can't teach the other subjects to a high enough level. Do you want to have a go at it? And the rest is history in the sense that I got into Emmanuel College, Cambridge. In 1962, I went up, met Sally in day two, as I say, and as I said, and it was pretty heavy duty learning concentrating on mathematics with a bit of philosophy of science on the side. And my main education has been mathematics. I first did my BA, then you got an MA for paying £10, I believe, after two years, a very cheap degree. And then I, I did a fearsome exam in my fourth year, and they didn't give me anything for it until 40 years later, and they gave me a Master of Mathematics for free. It was a graduate degree. And I did my doctorate there and then went and worked at the University of Wales in Cardiff where our children were born uh, and all the rest of it. And I was in Cardiff, Wales for 25 years. But during that time, I won a competitive scholarship twice to Germany. And I spent a year in Würzburg and a year in Freiburg and then a sabbatical year in Vienna. And in that first year, I got German. Something drove me to spend two or three hours every night for a year translating my Bible notes into German, not knowing why. And at the very end of that year, I got an invitation to Hungary, behind the Iron Curtain. And in those days, very few people spoke English. But because of the Second World War, many spoke German. So I would teach in German, and they would translate it into Hungarian. I'd go for a week, three hours teaching a night with three interpreters, and all that kind of thing. So the mathematics continued in Cardiff, and then this is a very complex story, and I'm not going to tell it all, but I was developing an international Bible teaching ministry, first of all, and then when people discovered I was a scientist and a mathematician, gradually... They started asking me the big questions. How does science relate to Christianity and so on? And I became very involved in doing that in universities around Britain and then the rest of the world. So <clears throat> it was becoming too much because I had, and I believe that was the right thing to do, I had essentially two jobs as well as being a husband, a father and everything else. But I did leave the university for five minutes when I was about 50. And I got out to concentrate essentially on teaching Bible and answering the big questions. But by a remarkable series of events, I came back into the university in Oxford. And Oxford gave me a professorship. And my academic career is unique, it seems to me. And it's God's doing. And that gave me a platform. Uh, to work there. On the way through, I got another degree, a DSC, Doctorate of Science. It's called the Higher Doctorate. It's based on the life's work in mathematics, and <clears throat> not many countries have this. The UK does, Russia does, and some others. 
And I was working all the time in mathematics, but spending a lot of time thinking and then eventually writing. But life changed completely when I debated Richard Dawkins in Birmingham, Alabama. All right, we're going to get to the debates in a yeah. minute, but but it, we've got uh, folks of all ages here. We've got people in high school and middle school, but we've also got people uh, who are seasoned in life uh, a bit more so. And I, I think a lot of people may want to know, I mean, you weren't just two plus two equals four. You, you in math, you dealt with group theory. And can, can you in 60 seconds explain to us a little bit about why you became so preeminent in the math field? What was your niche, if you will? I wouldn't claim to be preeminent. That's humility. I I resolved never to sell my soul for my professional career. And I had that deep sense of, Lord, take me as far as you want me to go. I'm going to work hard because I want to be a witness in my work, but I'm never going to sell my soul for it. And an incident occurred with a Nobel Prize winner that tried to get me to sell my soul. I don't know whether you want me to tell that. It happened when I was 19 in Cambridge. I had a dinner. We have nice dinners in the college. And I found myself sitting beside a Nobel Prize winning scientist. I'd never met one before. And... I did what I usually do. My intellectual hero from the ancient world is Socrates. And I spent a lot of time asking questions and listening to what people say before I say anything. So I was questioning him, dinner was sitting. And I risked the question. I said, sir, when you were doing your Nobel Prize winning research, did you ever think that there might be a mind behind what you're studying? And he reddened up and he said no. And that was the end of it. He was clearly very angry and turned away to his neighbor. And I thought that was the end of it. At the end of the dinner, he said, Lennox, come to my room. It wasn't an invitation. It was a command. So I went to his room, and to my utter astonishment, I found several senior members of the university there, including, tragically, the chaplain of the college. They sat me in a chair, and they stood around. And the Nobel Prize winner said, Lennox, do you want a career in science? Yes, sir. All right, he said, in front of witnesses tonight, give up this naive belief in God because I want to tell you something. If you carry on like that, you will never make it. You will suffer by comparison with your peers, so give it up. Talk about pressure. I couldn't help thinking afterwards that if he'd been a Christian and I'd been an atheist, he'd have been out of a job the next day. And I said to him, sir, tell me, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I already have in Christ? And he said, the evolutionary philosophy of Émile Bergson. And I nearly choked Because having read C.S. Lewis, I knew what that philosophy was. It was a very bad choice, by the way, because Bergson, who was Jewish, originally thought of converting to Catholicism, but didn't because of certain atrocities. So it was a bad choice. And I stood up and I said, if that's all you've got to offer me, I'll take the risk and stick with what I've got. And I walked out. 
Now that puts steel into me. That was really a transformative moment. I had no idea later I'd confront the likes of Dawkins and Hitchens and so on, but they're lightweights compared with a Nobel Prize winner. And somehow the Lord allowed that to happen to me at 19 to show that he was prepared to help me stand. And I look back to that incident and I'm so thankful it happened. And I remember coming out for that, I sat down, I was shaking in my room and I said, Lord, if I ever get to any sort of position of intellectual authority, I will never do what that man did. I will never browbeat anybody. What I would love to do is get into the discussion, allow people to see various sides of this discussion and trust them to be able to make up their own minds. And in that regard, you've been elected, if we look back on your math career, you've been elected to the Royal Society. No, no, you, no, 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 you've no, been. no. That's for the really clever boys. No, no, no. Listen, the, in mathematics, ladies and gentlemen, it's embarrassing because you know exactly where you are in the pecking order. I was fortunate the Lord has given me an international reputation. But compared with the big boys at the top, I'm an absolute minnow. Some of the mathematical theories in my field, I remember one of the most famous mathematicians in my field, an American, John Thompson, he came to Cambridge. And he tried to lecture. He had no idea, really. And we were all sitting in a room, about 30 of us. And he put a very famous mathematical paper on each desk, 250 pages. At that point, it was the longest argument in my field. And he started his lectures with the following immortal words. He said, ladies and gentlemen, the first 100 results are trivial, so we'll start with 101. It was just way out. And he used to just sit in his desk. We could see him through the window with his feet on the desk and it was all working in his head. I couldn't get anywhere near that. That paper, I still have it. If I were to spend the next 50 years working on it, I wouldn't understand it. That's the difference. So <laughs> I'm right, not but, in the royal but with, fair, but with fairness, you've got dozens of peer-reviewed math papers. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, you have written and published in math. You've done textbooks in math. Yes. You, you have accomplished a great deal in that field by the grace of God. Your, your walk in faith, did it, it, it gave you a polymath experience in a sense. It's, it's, it's broadened your field. But your field in the world of mathematics was quite accomplished, wasn't it? Reasonably. <laughs> I think that's, if, that's if, good. if you ask the mathematicians, they would give you their verdict. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to shift from background information to talking about certain interests that have been stirred up in your life. You've referenced a, a few of them, but I'd like to start out with these interests. Let's talk about science and faith and how they intersect. The floor is yours. Science and faith in what? Well, so, uh, you know, you, you think you studied 
or at least knew Sir John Polkinghorne. Yes, yes, he taught me. Okay, so John Polkinghorne uh, was brilliant in his ability to talk about the difference between, you know, if you ask, uh, one, one of his books I remember he referenced the idea of the difference between asking his wife uh, uh, why there was tea in the kettle and asking uh, a, a, a physicist why yes. there was tea in the kettle. It, it's it's a, a difference okay. in how you approach things. So talk about how you have seen a nexus or a merger in your life between what some people believe should be totally divorced from each other, yeah. that being science and faith. Okay. Well, I tend to put it slightly differently for a very simple reason. Faith has two meanings. Its first meaning is religion, the Christian faith, the Buddhist faith. Its second meaning is trust, and it's an ordinary word. And the sad thing is, in the popular mind, the word faith is a religious word, and it means believing where there's no evidence. I refute that completely. We all have a worldview that we believe in. So I prefer to talk about science and God, or science and faith in God. And what I say is, it's obvious that the tension that many people perceive is not between science and religion. Why? Take the Nobel Prize for Physics. It was won some years ago by Peter Higgs, he of the Higgs boson, a Scottish physicist. A few years before that, it was won by Bill Phillips, whom you may know, an American Nobel Prize winner. Now, what divides those people is not their physics. They both won the top prize. But Higgs is an atheist, and Bill Phillips is a Christian. So that shows you that it's not science versus Christian belief. It is science versus... No, it isn't science versus. It's a tension between two worldviews. Atheism and Christian theism, and there's scientists on both sides. That changes the parameters of the debate. That's number one. Number two, to come to what you actually said... Polky Horn and many others have used that illustration. To understand that science is limited. It's powerful because it's limited. It cannot answer every question, which is why I wrote my little book, Can Science Explain Everything? Here again, the academy in the West is dominated by what we call scientism. Science is the only way to truth. Now, that's logical nonsense, first of all, because... The statement, science is the only way to truth, is not a statement of science, so if it's true, it's false. Maybe too early in the morning for logic. Um, Secondly, science is limited. It's very easy to see. Another Nobel Prize winner, Sir Peter Medawar, once said it is so easy to see that science cannot answer even the simple questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What's the meaning of life? It's to literature, philosophy, and I would add theology that we need to go to answer those questions. But one of the easiest ways to see that science cannot deal with every question is something that I find kids from 10 upwards can understand, but a whole lot of professors can't. And it's this. It's the analogy you used. Why is the water boiling? It's boiling because heat energy is agitating the molecules and making them move very fast. Well, it's actually boiling because I'd like a cup of tea. (laughs) Now, think of those explanations. Do they conflict? No. 
Do they compete? No. They complement. And outside the lab, the tea, wanting a cup of tea, is by far the most important explanation. <laughs> so it's very simple. But you see, raise that up to the level of the universe. God no more competes with science as an explanation for the universe than Henry Ford competes with automobile engineering as an explanation for the motor car. There are different kinds of explanation. And this is where Dawkins is totally wrong. And Hawking was completely wrong when asking people to choose between God and science. Because they think, and many in the in the world today think that God and science are the same kind of explanation. And so if you believe in science, you can't believe in God and vice versa. And that is absolute nonsense. It's like Henry Ford versus automobile engineering. So those simple analogies, and that's why I wrote this book, in order to give people, you don't have to be a scientist to understand that analogy. In fact, I know scientists who are members of the Royal Society and they cannot understand that in science, their faith in science is actual faith. Just as my faith in God. So we can ask the question on both sides, what is the evidence on which your faith is based? And that's another big topic, but well, that's no, getting no, no, us no. into I like this because neuroscientists can illustrate the reasons why, and I can mechanically walk through those uh, uh, sort of, tentatively, not being a neuroscientist per se, but there is a phrase that has entered into modern parlance that I think is important here, Uh, and the phrase is, uh, to a hammer, every problem is a nail. In other words, we, we have a tendency to view things through our own oh, yes. tools and accomplishments. And, and some things are nails and they need a hammer, but some things are light bulbs and a hammer's not really going to help you. And, and yet, so you take someone like a Dawkins uh, or Stephen Hawking, maybe even a better example, and their toolbox is pretty limited. They're, they're a hammer. They know the science within their area. And so they tend to interpret everything by that science. And because they don't know and understand faith and reason and mm-hmm. God, they, they think that it is something that exists outside of the world as they understand it. Correct. And, and because it's a nail. Everything's a nail. And they, they never understand a light bulb um, with their hammer. But it brings me into a second area that I wanted to talk to you about on interests. And that second area are debates. Because you've actually debated... Uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and a number of others, and I'd be and I've seen them on the internet, some of them. Um, but I'd love to know how you got into that and why you did it and what you learned from it. I got into it when a young historian from Birmingham, Alabama, turned up at a lecture I gave in Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, many years ago. And he was looking. He spent two or three months, I believe, scouring Europe. He wanted to reach the parts of Birmingham society that the churches weren't reaching. The country clubs, the educational installations, all that kind of thing, science centers. And he was on his last night and he was bitterly disappointed. 
And he saw that there was a lecture on science and God. And it was in a most uncomfortable room. And so he thought, well, blow it. I'm going home tomorrow. I might as well be disappointed for a final time. And he turned up and I was talking. And he told me afterwards, he said, within two minutes, I knew I had the answer to my question. So I, it, I was very tired. It was a horrible room, very uncongenial. The refectory, actually, you probably know it. And at the end, there was a line of people. And here was this tall, very nicely spoken, as so many people in the South are. And he said, will you ever think of coming to Birmingham, Alabama? (laughs) (laughs) And I was exhausted. I just wanted to go home. And I said to him, it would have to be really serious. Thank you, sir. And he went. Six weeks later, I had a letter. Dear Professor Lennox, I can organize one, the Science Center, two, the Country Club, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Now I need to know if you're serious. (laughs) I showed it to my wife, whom I always consult about doing anything, which is a very wise thing to do, by the way, gentlemen. And she said, you better do something about this. So off I went to Alabama, and he was true to his word. He'd started a small apologetics ministry. He was, he's a brilliant historian. It, you may know him, Larry Taunton. He's one of the writers for The Atlantic, for USA Today, and he's constantly talking about the big issues. Well, anyway, I went. A marvelous hospitality, but he delivered. He really delivered, and I got into places. I remember in the McWayne Science Center, I'll never forget it, the the director was sitting beside him, and he was shaking. And I said, what's wrong with you? He said, if you blow it, I lose my job. (laughs) Well, I said, relax. And afterwards, he was beaming and thanked me. But anyway, what happened after that was, he came to Oxford, and he went to listen to Dawkins. And a few weeks after that, he, I had an email copied to Dawkins and vice versa that people in Alabama wanted a taste of the Oxford God debate. Would we be prepared to debate? Now, there's a huge backstory. First of all, Dawkins wrote back and said, look, Lennox, I haven't a clue who he is, but if you get the Archbishop of Canterbury or Francis Collins, I'll come, you see. So <laughs> it was funny. Larry is very clever and he wrote back. He said, well... He said, you know, not everybody in Alabama would appreciate the Archbishop of Canterbury (laughs) and various other things. So in the end, the two of us went and he organized that debate in the Alice Stevens Center. And it was absolutely packed. And as we went into the theater, I'd never met Dawkins before. And he said to me, he said, you know, I don't debate well, I said, if it's any consolation, I'd never debated before. I'd never done anything like it before. And I said, Richard, look, what I want to do in this is simply to set in front of the public what I believe is a rational answer to your atheism. And he said, I'll buy that. And we walked in, and the rest is history. So what was your impression after the debate? And, and did you have any interaction with Dawkins afterwards? Uh, well, first... I was terrified, of course. I spent, I think, six months preparing many hours a day, reading everything 
that he'd written. These debates are very expensive on time and energy. And of course, I realized that it was going to be a trial. And in that sense, I was going to be defending Christianity. And that's an awesome responsibility. But on the plus side, I knew there were hundreds, if not thousands of people praying for that evening. And so in the end, there I was, I went in. I had zero contact really, subsequently, except for the subsequent debates. No interaction, which is sad. I I regret that greatly, but just, he didn't appear to want to. Uh, I invited him to a major dinner and he didn't even reply in Oxford. So just a little bit sad about that. All the I try to befriend people, even very hostile people, in public. But the debate was the debate, and it went around the world. And for your encouragement, I still get letters today from people that have been converted directly through watching it or the uh, online. You can see it online still. And, and you debated other people, uh, you debated Hitchens. Do you have one more debate interaction or story or result before I move to the next area? Uh, well, I can tell you one story which has got a bit of humor in it because it illustrates something I was saying before. I was in Melbourne Town Hall and Peter Singer from Princeton, very famous ethicist. He's Australian, so I was on his home turf, and Larry again arranged the debate. He arranged all those debates. Amazing. So (laughs) I told the audience what I told you earlier. My parents were believers and so on. So he stands up, and he says, well, there goes my main objection to Christianity and any religion, that people stay in the religion in which they were brought up. And you are a classic case, you see. And when I heard that, I thought, this is going to be very interesting. (laughs) So, what I said when I came on, I said, Peter, I told the audience about my background. You didn't tell us about your background. Were your parents atheists? They were. Oh, I said, Peter, you stayed in the faith in which you were brought up. And he said, but it isn't a faith. Oh, I said, Peter, I was under the impression you believed it. (laughs) At that moment, cyberspace went viral. (laughs) That one of the world's leading philosophers didn't recognize that his atheism was a belief system. It was staggering. And that illustrates exactly the difficulty. Dawkins writes a book. In it he says, scientists have no faith. And the whole of the rest of the book is about what he believes. Hitchens was even worse. He said, our faith's not a faith. Our beliefs are not a belief. Because they've redefined it. And it's got into Webster's Dictionary. I don't know whether you know that. Webster's Dictionary, faith noun believing where there's no evidence. It's staggering. Faith in English comes from the Latin fides, from which we get fidelity. And everybody knows that the only faith worth happening, having in normal life is evidence-based faith. You know why you trust certain facts. You know why you trust certain people. Evidence-based faith is at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of science. 
but these people don't recognize it because there's a huge black hole in their experience once they realize that their atheism is a belief system. And I'm going to say something really provocative now, but I believe it firmly. Science and God, that's fine. The real tension is science and atheism. They don't fit well together at all. Wow, that, okay, that's good. <laughs> now, here's my problem. I've got about three to four more hours of questions to ask you. <laughs> and I've got eight minutes in which to do it. So you have to tell Sally that you must come back. <laughs> and we will continue this dialogue. But I'm not going to let you leave without I, I, your story of going. First of all, you, you got to go to Russia multiple times, but you started going to Russia for academic, um, uh, before the USSR and the Iron Curtain fell. You found yourself in East Germany, you found yourself in Russia, doing so under the, the imprimatur of your academia, uh, working in mathematics in their languages, and yet God used all of that for his purposes. I'd love you to tell a story or two. Well... There are two parts to my story. During the Cold War, I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, particularly Hungary, Poland, but mostly East Germany because I was fluent in the language. When the wall fell, and I helped to knock it down, I was actually there, then it was very clear that I was being moved in another direction. And here's how it happened. I was at a conference for mathematical cryptographers in Belgium, the kind of cryptography that keeps your account in an ATM safe and your financial transactions. And the driver of the bus taking us to the train station picked up a friend, and as a result, we all missed the train. So 50 angry mathematicians in the evening waiting for a train to go to Cologne from a town in Belgium. Eventually, the train came, and I got in, and I was a bit concerned because it was getting dark and I was on my own. I got into this compartment and in the compartment there were two Russians. There was a German student and a Belgian person who worked in the tourism trade. And I started chatting to the Russians and uh, discovered amazingly that they were from Lake Baikal, which is the largest chunk of fresh water in the world very pure water. And he said he was an ecologist and his wife who was with him. And I said, are you allowed to do things like ecology now? This is 1989 or 90. And he said, yes. And suddenly I thought, let me ask him another question. So I said, are there other things that you can talk about now that you couldn't earlier? He said, like what? I said, like God. And in that moment almost as if a voice spoke to me, you must give this man a Bible. Now, he spoke no English. Where do you get a Russian Bible in a train hurtling at 150 kilometers an hour through Belgian countryside? But I couldn't get it out of my head as I kept chatting to him, you must give him a Bible, you must. And then I remembered that 
three weeks before, I'd been in the house of a German publisher in Germany, and sitting on his desk was a large print Russian Bible, and I picked it up. He said, is that any use to you? Well, I said, lovely. I'd love it, because my Russian Bible is very small print. So he'd take it. And I thought in the train, is it still my suitcase? Sure, I left it at home. So still chatting, I stood up, put my hand in the case, and the Bible was there. I took it out, and I gave it to him. And I said, that's for you. And he went white, and he couldn't speak. And then suddenly he said, how did you know? I said, how did I know what? He said, how did you know that six weeks ago the only Bible we've ever seen was stolen? And we never hoped to see another Bible. How did you know? I said, I didn't know. Do you believe this book? Looking straight in the eye. He said, I don't know. But she does. And I turned and his wife was there beaming. She took the book. She started to weep and she held it. And she said, is this really for me? I said, that's for you. You take it home. And they were gone. And the German student said, does that often happen to you? (laughs) And I said, not every Tuesday, no. (laughs) Well, she said, that's astonishing. I said, not really, because... You see, these people have been forbidden the word of God for 75 years. And what you saw tonight was God using me as a postman. Well, she said, well, if that's true, I need to start reading the Bible. And she did, and that's another story. But what happened next, I got home eventually. And before I was into the house, my suitcase, I told Sally the story. And she said, get your diary. I said, look, I'm not even in the house. Get your diary. I said, why? She said, you need to cancel a lot of engagements. I said, why? She'd never done this before or since. She said, you're going to Russia. I said, I'm what? (laughs) How would you go to Russia? Well, I said, look, let me get get my coat off at least. Let's get into the house and sit down. How would you go to Russia? as a mathematician. Well, I said, there's an exchange scheme uh, between the Royal Society and the Russian Academy of Sciences. Ring them up. I said, just a minute. Just, just ring them up. So I rang them up. And the following conversation, this is usually a hugely complex procedure that takes months, even years, formally. So I spoke to a man in the Royal Society. I said, is there an exchange program of mathematics between the academies. He said, there is. Do you want to go to Russia? And my wife was going... (laughs) (laughs) He said, we're desperate. I said, for what? He said, some of the most brilliant people in your field are Russians. We want them out. But the academy is very strict. One week for one week. And one week's not good enough. And Sally says, give them two months. Just like that. So I said, how would it be if I came for two months? He said, you can go tomorrow. I said, but what about the forms? Forget the forms. Well, I went six months later, and that's what started it. It was such a change of direction. God directed me in a similar way to Eastern Europe years before that. And he changed direction. And so I started to go to Russia, particularly to Siberia. And 
a doorway opened up that will only be told when I finish my autobiography. So that's the start of it anyway. Well, that, that's... Okay, I'm sorry, I was so into the story, I put down the mic. <laughs> we, we are officially uh, out of time in about 30 seconds, but you've told me more of the story and what happened when you were in Russia for that time and the, the articles you were able to write in the paper and, and things like that. So I am eager for the autobiography, but I'm also... Would you join me in being eager to bring John back? <laughs> John, at the end of each class, I, I typically ask the Lord to bless those who hear this message either live here or through the, the wonders of the Internet. Would you uh, uh, ask a blessing over our listeners and our class uh, in my stead today, please? Father, we praise you that you have allowed us to get to know you through the Lord Jesus. And we worship him as the Son of God, the truth, the light of the world. And we pray for everybody who's been listening and watching today that you may help us to find what you want us to do in this world. Give us courage to stand for the truth of the gospel. Enable us to engage with our friends and our relatives and our colleagues at work. And Father, we pray, make yourself real to each one of us. We pray for this church and the services that will follow today. But above all, Lord, help us each to follow you and your ways, to honor you in all that we do. And we will give you the praise. And we thank you for the massive hope that we have in this troubled, uncertain world that Jesus is coming again. Amen. Amen. Would you join me one more time in thanking him? Now, church starts in 15 minutes, and a lot of you are going to want to say hello to John. But I'd ask you to be sensitive to the fact that there's probably five or 600 people right now who'd like to say hello to him, and we have to get into church in 14 minutes. So, uh, yes, come up and say hello, but uh, don't engage him in a lifelong debate.